If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. I suppose you can imagine a world where there's no deal on on American independence and the British army and navy continues to occupy and hold the city of New York. And that would have been a really serious problem for creating the United States. That was Tom Cutterham describing the US's departure from the British Empire. Listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. We're the UK's best selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History Magazine. Late last year, we ran a piece in the magazine by the historian Dr Tom Cutterham of Birmingham University, in which he talked about how the United States negotiated its independence from the British Empire after the American Revolutionary War. Now with the Brexit negotiations leading the news agenda in Britain, we thought it would be a good time to revisit this topic and consider what, if anything, today's politicians and diplomats could learn from their British and American counterparts of 230 years ago. So I caught up with Tom a little while back to explore the parallels and differences between these two momentous negotiations. So, Tom, first of all, could you please just briefly set the scene of these Paris negotiations? Who were the negotiating parties and why were they there? Sure. So, I mean, the key thing to the scene is that the military conflict uh, over North America has essentially kind of come to a halt with the American victory um, at Yorktown at the end of 1781, and the full Lord North's ministry in Britain, which kind of creates an opening for peace negotiations to begin uh, under the new government of Lord Shelburne. So there is a couple of British peace commissioners in Paris, a guy called uh, Richard Oswald, David Hartley. Uh, they're appointed by the Shelburne government. And then on the American side, you've got most importantly, Benjamin Franklin, who's been ambassador in France for some time throughout most of the war. Um, you've got John Jay, who's also a very senior American diplomat. Um, and you've got John Adams, who's kind of pulled in at the last minute, uh, coming down from the Netherlands, where he's been ambassador for a little while. So th- those are the much more famous figures now on the American side than the two Brits. What were the two sides hoping to achieve at the outset? Well, so when negotiations actually began in kind of 1782, after this big American victory at Yorktown um, and obviously the resignation of the British prime minister, Franklin was quite pushy at the beginning with his goals, including expecting the British to negotiate over the possibility of ceding Canada to the United States. Obviously, early on in the war for independence, the Americans had unsuccessfully invaded Canada. So Franklin tried to put that on the table. He didn't get very far with it in the end. That was probably the most ambitious 
aim of the Americans. But in terms of the kind of territorial settlement, they were still asking for quite a lot, really. They were asking, of course, for independence for the 13 colonies, but also for kind of the, the grant or the control of territory to the west of those colonies, you know, around the Appalachian Mountains up to the Mississippi River. So there's a territorial demand on the American side. Then there are also, with some more modern resonances, there's also quite a lot of uh, negotiation over fishing rights uh, around the coast of Newfoundland and things like that. On the British side, the main items of concern, uh, apart from trying to kind of reduce American territory and keep hold of Canada and things like that. The main items of concern are really what's going to happen to the loyalists, what's going to happen to the British citizens, British subjects who were living in North America, who are now kind of displaced by the war, who, who are kind of refusing to become part of the United States. Many of them are already refugees in Canada or they've taken refuge in Britain. Um, what's going to happen to them, their land, their property, and also what's going to happen to debts and kind of business relationships uh, that predated the war between Americans and British citizens. Basically, the question is, will American debtors continue to pay their debts to British subjects who are their creditors? Now, we're talking at the moment in light of the ongoing Brexit negotiations. What do you see as key similarities between the two situations, albeit 200 years apart? Thinking about it earlier today, there are a surprising number of similarities, really, if you're if you're willing to sort of suspend the 200 years of difference. Um, one of them is the kind of weakness in many ways of both sides in the negotiation, but especially the side that's leaving if you want the existing organization. Let's say that the British Empire is a little bit like the European Union in some ways. Uh, United States is attempting to leave that um, big political, trade, cultural block uh, in some ways. So they're a bit more like the situation Britain is in now. One of the things that's really difficult for them is that the three peace commissioners that I mentioned, Benjamin Franklin, John Jay, John Adams, they're not completely secure in their ability to represent the actual will of the American people. So they've been appointed by uh, Congress, which is a pretty ad hoc representative body that draws its membership from people appointed by the local governments of each of the states. At no point there is there really very much kind of direct popular representation. No one held a referendum about what should we do with how should we create a new government, how should we declare independence, should we declare independence, any of those things. And the actual state leaderships, the state governments, the state assemblies in each of the 13 new independent states don't necessarily agree with the policies of the Congress, the Central Congress. And they certainly don't necessarily agree with what the peace negotiators are actually doing and asking for. So they're in quite a they're in quite a delicate position where they have to claim to the British that they do represent America and they represent what Americans want. And therefore, once the treaty is negotiated, it will have legitimacy and it will have um, kind of legal force in the United States. Um, but they have to kind of spin those claims. They have to position themselves as able to fulfill the agreements that they make. That's one of the similarities that I think is interesting. The other um, thing that seems interestingly similar is just how much the negotiation is really ongoing. And even the actual making of the treaty isn't uh, an end point to the political difficulties that this enormous change creates. So even after the Treaty of Paris has actually been written and, and signed and agreed upon, there's still lots of ground to cover in terms of 
actually putting into place what's agreed and actually creating a new relationship between the United States and um, Britain. For example, the treaty says that the Brits are supposed to give up control of a variety of forts uh, up in the northwest around the Great Lakes on the kind of American-Canadian border, uh, a number of forts which are now within the territory that they've given over to um, the United States, but they maintain control of those forts. They keep British troops in those forts for years after the treaty's actually officially been made. And partly they're doing that because they're saying, well, we'll we'll fulfill our side of the treaty once you fulfill yours, meaning once the American states actually make their citizens pay the debts that they owe to British subjects. You can make a treaty and you can say, we're going to do these things, but actually enforcing them um, and making sure that each side lives up to the agreements it's made is its own problem. In the negotiations nowadays, they've certainly become quite fractious, haven't they, between Britain and the EU. Uh, did this kind of level of hostility also occur between the American and British negotiators? I think there was less hostility, really, uh, in terms of kind of direct social interaction, in terms of the kind of, um, are they laughing at each other behind their backs? Are they trying to kind of generate a feeling of tension? Those things seemed seem to me to have been less in the 18th century, partly because Benjamin Franklin and Richard Oswald were kind of old friends. Perhaps it has something to do with the fact that all three of the of the American peace commissioners, you know, in many ways, they continue to see themselves as British people. You know, they, they're all born British. They're all part of a continuing cultural world of the British Empire. And they, they have lots of the same assumptions, lots of the same ideas of kind of liberality and um, virtue and kind of uh, commercial rights and wrongs that the British side do. Um, so in many ways, they're on the same side and they, or they're on the same page and they see the world quite similarly. So for example, when they're negotiating this question of, um, you know, will Americans pay their debts to the, to the Brits? Will uh, Americans continue to confiscate land from accused loyalists even after the end of the war? John Adams um, says to the British negotiators, well, there's absolutely no way um, we're going to kind of dupe anyone. There's no way that we're going to do something unjust in our um, negotiations. Just because uh, these are American citizens doesn't mean we're going to allow them to get out of their, their justly made debts. So we're kind of with you on that. In some ways, that seems like negotiation in much better faith than the negotiation that uh, is going on today. Another aspect in negotiations today that's been in the news quite a lot recently, is the prospect of a potential no-deal Brexit. What would a failure to reach agreement in 1782 have looked like, and was that countenanced by the parties? Like I said, that the military situation was in a place where fighting had basically stopped at this point. So we're not negotiating in the midst of ongoing fighting. What we do have is the British army is still in control of a couple of American cities, most notably New York, right? The main uh, British occupation is, is the city of New York. So if they hadn't come to a deal, probably that occupation would have continued. Uh, I suppose you can imagine a world where uh, there's no deal on, on American independence and the British army and navy continues to occupy and hold the city of New York. And that would have been a really serious problem for creating the United States because it's, it's, it's a key kind of commercial port, obviously, but it's also because it's right in the middle of the colonies. It divides New England from not only Pennsylvania, but from the south. Um, it would have made it much harder to form a kind of union that kind of brought together the whole continent. Obviously, it's difficult to look back and imagine 
how that they could have not come to an agreement at some point, partly because the British were under quite a lot of pressure to, to deal with the American situation, to get a deal um, so that they could go on and, and sort out the, the kind of larger global war that they were involved in with France and Spain. In some ways, the Americans were a little bit of a distraction from the much larger ongoing um, conflict with the French and Spanish empires. In terms of timing, again, now, you know, we've got this deadline of March next year when Brexit is supposed to have happened. Were the negotiators in the 1780s operating to a similar kind of deadline? Not really. One of the sort of time pressures that, that occurred within these negotiations, which in some ways was was possible to interpret and understand at the time, but in other ways wasn't, was the continuous change in the British ministry. So like I mentioned earlier, the negotiations were able to come about because Lord North um, resigned. The prime minister through most of the war, he resigned uh, after the defeat at Yorktown. There's a new prime minister comes in, Lord Shelburne. He's much, much more pro-American, much, much more open and, and, and willing to kind of negotiate to see America as a potential future trade partner. But his ministry is incredibly short-lived. So by the time they actually sign the treaty at the end of uh, 1783, he's already out of office. And there's a new British uh, government in place, the Fox North Coalition, led by the Duke of Portland. He's the one who actually kind of oversees the, the signing of the treaty. But he's out the window by December when William Pitt, uh, the younger, comes in as a new prime minister. So there's incredibly rapid change in the British government. And in some ways, that puts pressure on the negotiations to actually get a deal sorted out while there's a pro-American, uh, relatively forward-thinking, pro-trade politician actually in control of things. Of course, on the other side, um, there's enormous questions about what the future of the American polity is going to be. You know, will Congress continue to function once the war is effectively over? Partly that's in question because the individual American states have basically stopped giving money to Congress. Once the military kind of battle is won, once they, they no longer fear invasion by actual British troops, they stop paying any money to Congress because there's basically no point in doing it. Congress is really on its, on its last legs through most of the 1780s up until the um, Constitutional Convention in 87. So those, those kinds of political pressures are probably the biggest time pressure facing these negotiators. Now, you've already mentioned some of the figures involved in negotiations and people like Benjamin Franklin and John Adams were real political giants and are still very famous today. Do you think it's potentially the case that we're no longer producing politicians of this kind of calibre or is that just a nostalgic view? I mean, obviously, it's, it's mainly a nostalgic view. And there is something in the way that Americans have constructed their own past, and especially the founding era, that continues to kind of allow these, these people on their side to be held up as giants. We don't really look back to William Pitt, for example, in the same way, either the elder or the younger William Pitt. We don't really think back to them and see them as enormous giants because they're just not part of this kind of founding story of our culture and our politics. That said, I mean, there is an important difference between what was going on back then and, and the way things are conducted now um, that I, I wanted to mention in regard to a previous question. But one of the differences between what was going on then and now is the difference of media, the, the different way that these people had to kind of play to perceptions, play to larger audiences. So today, when Theresa May makes a statement that's ostensibly to uh, European negotiators or ostensibly kind of uh, towards Europe, 
often it seems like she's really speaking to potential conservative voters or even just to other conservative MPs who might prefer to be leader of the party or whatever, um, because every statement she makes is going to be picked up. It's going to be put on Twitter. It's going to be on the news kind of the next moment. That kind of 24-7 media intrusion obviously isn't the case in the in the 18th century. It's much more possible to sit down and kind of talk things through um, and have a, a gentlemanly chat. That's not to say that media doesn't intrude. I mean, in some ways, the American Revolution uh, started off because of a series of leaked documents that Benjamin Franklin managed to leak. So there were sometimes uh, similar media storms, but most of the time, these negotiators weren't trying to play to a gallery back at home. They were genuinely trying to negotiate a successful treaty. Obviously, nowadays, there are a lot of people in Britain and, and in the EU who feel that Britain and potentially Europe will be worse off after Brexit. Were there also people in America who, who were concerned that leaving the British Empire would actually be bad for them? Uh, absolutely, definitely. So I mentioned earlier that there were plenty of loyalists. That's the term used for people living in America, British subjects who didn't take the side of independence. Um, and that's, you know, that's a large number of people. At least a third of people living in North America weren't in favour of independence in the first place. And obviously, there's quite a lot of changes of mind over the course of the uh, the quite long Revolutionary War and the 1780s afterwards. But yeah, there's plenty of good arguments for why you wouldn't want to leave the British Empire. The most important one is trade. Exactly the same with the European situation. By far the biggest trading partner for North American colonies was Britain and its empire, including its Caribbean colonies. Quite a lot of that trade is done illicitly. And of course, Americans who favor independence think, well, we can just basically carry on doing what we've been doing. And now we'll have the opportunity to negotiate trade treaties with everyone else as well. Now we'll be able to trade with Spain, we'll be able to trade with France. It'll be great. Very much like, you know, the Liam Fox school of Brexit, right? We'll be able to negotiate all these new trade treaties. But of course, most of the more realistic American politicians, American thinkers are looking at this situation and thinking with some worry, you know, how exactly are things going to work after we leave this trade block, the British Empire, which has been so crucial to creating prosperity in America up till now. The most optimistic ones, and this is kind of Franklin's position, basically, the most optimistic ones think that if Britain really knows what's good for it, they will continue to trade with America after independence. And that's what Lord Shelburne, the very short-lived British prime minister, kind of stood for. He stood for turning America into a really useful trade ally for Britain. Um, but that policy doesn't last very long. And then it causes all sorts of problems in the 1790s and early 19th century when those visions of kind of straightforward trade negotiations, trade relations with Britain don't quite pan out for the Americans. One thing to add on that, the thing that really saves uh, America in the long run is the massive wars in Europe that start basically because of the French Revolution, the rise of Napoleon. Um, you end up with shortfalls of food production in Europe, which means that they're forced to look to North America um, for imports of food. And they're basically forced back into trade relations that they otherwise might not have entered into. And then on the other side, were there also people in America who, you know, having just spent several years fighting the British, wanted an absolutely complete rift with the British Empire. Yes, obviously, fighting for independence is a complete rift with the British Empire. The question is, what kind of world is going to exist after independence has been achieved? Although kind of obviously revolutionary rhetoric is anti-British in some ways, and it's much more anti-king, you know, anti-monarchy, anti um, Hanoverians, anti-parliament, anti the current leaders, especially Lord North, there's not a sense that 
um, Britain doesn't represent the kind of civilization that we want to be. There's not a sense, as you kind of sometimes see with Brexit and Europe, that we are one separate kind of people and these are another separate kind of people. Americans are British in many, in many ways, even those who supported independence. They didn't feel that they um, wanted to totally cut themselves off from the birthplace of their, of their culture and of many of their kind of families. I mean, America is a diverse place as well. There are plenty of German-speaking people, plenty of uh, people who weren't descended from, from British people, but that was the key cultural world that they lived in. And no one really uh, wanted to leave that world behind. When we come to the end of the negotiations, what, what were the key final outcomes and how satisfied were the two parties by what had been uh, resolved? Well, the Americans had reason to be really very satisfied with the outcomes of their negotiations. Like on the key issue of territorial control, basically what the Treaty of Paris does is grant America control of all the territory up to the Mississippi River. So basically fulfilling uh, their demands um, from the outset, not including Canada, of course. So there's a northern border around the Great Lakes with uh, British-possessed Canada. There's also a southern border um, because uh, Florida is not part of the United States, not part of the 13 colonies. Florida goes from the British to the Spanish as a result of the American Revolution. So it remains in Spanish hands until the early 19th century. Uh, so you've got these two borders. You've got the Mississippi as a border and you've got the Atlantic on fishing um, rights, the Americans are reasonably successful. You know, they they kind of share rights to fishing off Newfoundland with the with the British. And then on the other things that I that I said were important, that is the debts owed by Americans to British firms and British merchants. As I as I kind of mentioned, John Adams and other American negotiators never intended to to try to cut off those debts. So they. Um, pledge essentially to to enforce the continuation of those debts, including debts that were contracted before the war. Um, what they also do, I mean, in some ways, the the, the greatest fudge of the uh, Treaty of Paris is in this article where the Americans say that what they're going to do is they're going to earnestly recommend to the various state legislatures that they recognize the original loyalist owners of, of property that had been confiscated during the war. So, of course, during the war, uh, people who don't declare for the revolution, if they've got lots of land, that land is taken away and kind of given out to, to proper patriots and used as part of the war process. There is some hope amongst loyalists that the treaty will force Americans to give that land back to its original rightful owners. The American negotiators know that that's basically not going to happen. So what they do to get around it, what they do to, to, like I say, fudge the issue is to say that, well, we can't actually make that happen because it's within the purview of the state governments, not the Congress. But what we'll do is we'll make sure that Congress recommends that the states give that land back. And of course, it never actually happens. Looking at the longer term, who would we say emerged best out of this negotiation? Negotiation over what's going to happen continues for several decades after the after the Treaty of Paris. So you have a, a second treaty, a trade treaty made in the 1790s uh, called Jay's Treaty, which was seen as a defeat by most American politicians, especially those aligned with Jefferson. Um, they saw that as um, the Americans lining up with the British in the war against France and kind of giving away the store in terms of controlling their own commerce. Basically, the Jay Treaty takes America partially back into the British imperial commercial world. Uh, then you have 
from the beginning of the 19th century, you have this massive problem with impressment, where the British Empire continually treats American sailors as if they're British. You're in the wars with Napoleon, you're trying to get as many sailors as possible. You can stop a ship. If they speak English, doesn't matter if they say they're American, you're going to bring them on board and impress them into being sailors. Americans really hated that because it wasn't recognizing the citizenship of their American citizens. And that kind of created ongoing problems, led to uh, Thomas Jefferson trying to create a trade embargo against um, Britain in 1807, a really, really disastrous policy that is enormously uh, counterproductive for the American economy, and then ultimately leading to the War of 1812 under James Madison's presidency, which is basically a failure for the United States. You know, it's seen now as kind of a glorious failure or a kind of a draw, but the War of 1812, the Second War of Independence, just showed how little, in many ways, the Americans had actually emerged from under the, the shadow of the British Empire. So it took a lot longer than, than a couple of decades, actually, for the United States to really gain a true kind of independence from, from Britain. On a wider point, as a historian, how helpful do you think these historical parallels are when thinking about issues that are affecting us nowadays? That's a good question, Rob. I mean, I think it can be interesting and fun. One thing that, I, for me, thinking about this question, it's enabled me to kind of think a bit differently about the negotiations of the 1780s uh, by thinking about what's going on now. And of course, we're constantly bombarded with day-to-day -day news of the Brexit negotiations. It actually helps kind of bring a slightly different angle to thinking about how the past worked. So you can do it the other way as well. As for what does negotiations of the Treaty of Paris back in the 1780s tell us about Brexit today, mostly I think the lessons are kind of straightforward. They are, you need to think about the legitimacy of the negotiators on both sides. How can they achieve legitimacy? How can they be sure that they will actually be able to uh, follow through on the promises that they make in any given treaty? Um, and I suppose the other thing is to, is to have this realization that you may write down a treaty and you may go through an enormous formal process of ratifying and um, kind of accepting and finalizing it, but that doesn't mean that the real negotiations are over. They're likely to continue a lot. There's always going to be new problems that arise. If you're trying to break apart a pre-existing uh, enormous kind of trans-statal institution like the British Empire or like the European Union, it's going to take a lot more than just one treaty to actually accomplish that. If you could offer one piece of advice to either the British or European negotiators based on your understanding of the 18th century negotiations, what would that advice be? Here would be my, my piece of advice, and that's drawing from um, John Adams's work in, in 1783, and that is, if you can't actually get what you want exactly, then design a clever fudge that will allow both sides to save face, but actually negotiate the real results, uh, the real kind of outcomes later on. Uh, if you can if you can design a clause in the treaty that seems to both sides to be a victory, but doesn't actually finally decide anything, that's probably the easiest way to get a treaty actually made. That was Tom Cutterham. His book, Gentlemen Revolutionaries, Power and Justice in the New American Republic, was published last year by Princeton University Press. And as I mentioned at the start, Tom wrote a piece on this topic in our Christmas 2017 issue, which you can read on our online library at historyextra.com. The library is available to all print and many digital subscribers. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash the hyphen library. And that is about all for today, but do join us again on Thursday 
when we'll be exploring a curious slice of Scandinavian history. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. Thank you.